Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 671 with uh, my guest, Renee Johnson. I'm Paul Gilmartin. You are listening to uh, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, past, present, maybe future. Uh, This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Unlike Renee, I am not a therapist. Um, I started this podcast in 2011 uh, to kind of be something to help bring people comfort and to let them know they're not alone and to talk about the tangled bowl of spaghetti that mental mental health and mental struggles can be. And uh, happy Thanksgiving to anybody out there celebrating it. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Borderline Schmorderline. And uh, she asks, uh, Hi, Paul. I'm a proud Patreon supporter. Well, thank you. Uh, I've been You've been mentioning that we need 1,500 Patreon donors per month for the podcast to break even. Is this assuming everyone is donating at the minimum level? I'm asking because I recently upgraded my monthly donation, and I'm hoping if others can afford to do so too, you might reach your goal sooner. Thanks. Uh, First of all, thank you so much for being a Patreon donor, and thank you to everybody who has been chipping in and uh, helping during this very very tenuous uh time it means a lot to me and i uh i say 1500 donors because i think like the average uh donation that that people are uh donating at is around uh a little over five dollars and the podcast because we have costs like um need people to to help me with social media um uh somebody to help me edit, um, somebody to help with the website, uh, a lot of other things. And then I need to, uh, to make a, uh, a modest living. Um, and so that would be the 1500 would be, uh, in a nutshell, the, the, the budget for the podcast, um, for me to not be losing money is, um, about fifteen thousand uh, dollars a month, and uh, we're we're well below that right now. So uh, yeah, uh, that would be assuming that somebody was was donating. That all of those people would be donating. <laughs> I feel like I'm explaining this so badly. I've not had enough food to eat today, so I'm a little bit lightheaded. But that would be based on people uh, donating around the ten dollar. Uh, 
per month level. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey, and this is filled out by Kay. And uh, Kay writes about their uh, ADD. It's like holding a fistful of water. The harder I try, the more it falls out. About their anxiety. I always need to do something, anything. About their bulimia. Everything will be okay if I can just throw up again. I just eat my feelings. Uh, about their codependency. They want to die, and I know over half of me would die with them. Thank you for those. This is from the uh, Religious Abuse Survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Mary, quite contrary. You know, I've got to ask, how's the, how's the garden? How's it coming along? And Mary writes, in college, I became involved with a toxic church ministry on campus. It was based out of an independent Baptist church and had, and had extremely Calvinistic theology. I remember being told multiple times that God wants some people to go to hell because it shows his justice and brings him glory. How could that go bad? I was appalled, but because I liked the people in the group and wanted to be accepted, I did my best to internalize and believe the theology they taught. Unfortunately, no matter how hard I tried, I never felt like I was on the inside of the group, even when I joined the ministry's leadership team. Ultimately, I left the group and had a religious deconstruction because I could not accept the theology, but here are some of the experiences I had during the time I was in that group. Uh, one, the pastor's wife held an event that was meant for all of the women to confess their sexual sin. They hung red curtains in the church's gym and we sat in a large circle. Could this get any more handmaid's tale? Uh, a few people had pre-planned their confessions and then the rest of us were encouraged to follow their lead and share very personal stories about our sexual sin. I remember feeling terrified, but simultaneously compelled to admit that I masturbated, something I'd never told anyone before. In the moment, I felt relief from doing so, but I look back on this experience as coerced vulnerability. Uh, number two, I was told repeatedly that I needed to become a missionary because I was studying linguistics in college. I think a big factor in this is that I am overweight and not terribly pretty, so marriage was seen as off the table for me. And of course, if you aren't having babies, you need to make yourself useful to God somehow. That might seem like an exaggeration, but every single overweight woman I knew from that church was either already a missionary or planning on becoming one. It wasn't a coincidence. Uh, number three, on a missionary trip to an extremely dangerous area of the world, I became ill to, due to drinking unclean water. I didn't go to see a doctor, so I was sick for the duration of the month-long trip. Oh, my God. I hope you brought a change of underwear. Uh, one of the trip leaders said she would pray for me to feel better. The next day, she asked how I was feeling. I was still sick, and she told me I was still sick because I lacked faith that God would heal me. Please put me in touch with her because I would like to be friends with her. Uh, and number four, when my grandfather passed away, he was not a professing Christian. The pastor at his funeral made the entire eulogy about he was an example of why it was important to acknowledge Jesus as Lord so that we did not go to hell like my grandfather. Thank you, sir. What an excellent way to honor my grandfather's memory. 
There are more uncomfortable things that happen, but it would take forever to type them out. So I'll just stop there. Thank you. Thank you for those. Um, These are some loves from Bugs Bunny Ears. And they write, I love when my boyfriend holds me tightly and reassures me that everything will be okay while I'm having a panic attack or a breakdown, reminding me that I am loved even through the lows. I love that. I love your love. Should I start singing Love to Love You, Baby? No, I don't want to pay royalties. This is from the racism survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Puppish. And uh, what is your wraith ethnicity? Ethnicity. Uh, he writes half white, half black, but presenting as black. Uh, describe some of your experiences with racism. A lot of things that could be read as racism, but rarely overt. I grew up being told by other kids how ugly I was, how big my lips were. Uh, how I was the whitest black guy people had ever met. People threw things at me and kicked balls at me in the playground, but it was never prefaced with, hey, black person, dodge this, so I could never claim they were racist attacks. To this day, on dating apps, I get messages all the time that people want to fulfill their fantasy of trying a black cock for the first time, as though this is going to feel like a compliment for me. I hate being asked what my, quote, background, unquote, is. This is a term people throw around all the time where I live in Australia, and it's considered perfectly normal. But I feel what they're really asking is for an explanation as to why I look different. If I answer the question, they aren't interested in where I grew up or my actual mixed ethnicity. They don't care that I grew up in England with parents who were both also born and raised in England. They just keep asking until they get to hear that my grandparents on one side, who I never really knew, were from the Caribbean. Only then do they feel they understand and know me and can rest easy now that they understand my, quote, background, unquote. There are never any follow-up questions once they hear this. I've resorted to telling people that I'm not interested in discussing my background. This usually results in either insistence that nothing is wrong with demanding these answers and repeated questioning, or else profuse apologies and me having to reassure, reassure them that I'm not upset. Sorry about that noise there. Uh, Do you remember how you feel when these things happened? As a kid, I felt constantly on my guard, always ready to be randomly insulted or hit by a flying object. I tried to fade into the background at school, but I struggled to be stoic when people enjoyed getting a reaction out of me and seeing me upset. How do you feel about it now? Now as an adult, I just wish I could be seen neutrally and not as a black guy who needs to explain what sort of black they are. I feel like it means that my actual unique personality is never seen. I've struggled with self, self-esteem issues all my life, not knowing whether people are seeing an ugly black or whether they are capable of seeing anything about me. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? I wish people knew that noticing someone appears differently on the outside doesn't mean they deserve to be treated differently. Some people love being asked about their cultural background and heritage, but nobody seems to acknowledge that not everybody wants to be asked this on a daily basis. I wish people would take notice of my personality. Thank you for sharing that. And that uh, that must be uh, really fucking tiring. Thank you. Thank you for uh, giving us a peek 
into what you uh, what you experience. Uh, these are some loves from a person who calls himself Pants. And they write, I love the smell of a campfire on an autumn evening. Is there anything better than that? It, it, it almost, uh, you know, like when the days get short in the fall and it starts to get colder and you smell like that first fire coming out of somebody's chimney. Uh, it, it almost makes up for the fall depression that creeps in. I love a nap on the couch on a cloudy day. I love feeling an innate comfortability with someone uh, upon meeting them. I love the escapism I experience when binging Gilmore Girls or trashy reality shows. I love my niche taste in music and movies, but love talking to people who also appreciate them even more. I love poetry and highly recommend Neil Hilborn's This Is Not the End of the World. I love when Gracie likes to make her presence known to the podcast world and when I can hear you turning the pages when reading surveys. I love the comfort I feel in hearing you say, wrap it up at the end of an interview because it and your demeanor remind me so much of the therapist that helped save my life. Thank you for those. And Gracie thanks you. Where is she? Normally she sacked out on the uh, the bed behind me. Maybe she's preparing a Thanksgiving meal. Did I never mention the <laughs> Gracie? Gracie cooks on Thanksgiving every other day of the year. Nothing but oh, come Thanksgiving, sun comes up, flurry of activity. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Zeke Bot. And she struggles with a lot of things, depression, anxiety, PTSD, dissociative uh, disorder, anger issues, temporal lobe seizures, and being a sex crime victim. And a snapshot from her life. My mother began abusing me sexually and physically when I was still an infant. She added emotional and psychological abuse just as soon as my brain was developed enough to understand things. She was both a monster and a literal genius, so her methods of torture were always unexpected, creative, and devastating. Wow. Thank you for that. This is from the love survey filled out by our friend Pants again. And uh, Pants writes, I love that chickadees, hummingbirds, mason bees, squirrels, and cats rely on me to thrive. I'm proud of the micro sanctuary I've created sanctuary I've created in my itty bitty slice of the world. I feel uncontrollable joy when I'm laying in my backyard listening to their chirping while soaking in the sun's warmth. I love cold cereal, especially ones with no nutritional value. That's so good. I love spiral staircases of all varieties. I like to make, when I, when I appear at a party, I always come down a spiral staircase and uh, while someone's fanning me. It's really the only one, you know, you only make one first impression. And I got to say, spiral staircase is the way to go. Or you come up from a hatch in the floor and scare the shit out of everybody while you're holding a martini. 
They will remember you. I'll tell you that much. You may not get invited to anything ever again, but they will remember your name. I love the feeling after manically cleaning the house and feeling like I've earned the right to relax. Oh, boy, do I love that one. That is so good. Let's uh, take a quick break and see if we have any, uh, any advertisers. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And then finally, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by Hazel and uh, about her anxiety. She writes, it feels exactly like the moment right before disaster strikes. The hammer falls. Your terrible secret is brought to light. It's the feeling you get when you're teetering on the edge. When that long impending doom is finally scheduled to arrive and the wolf is at your door, or even worse, the police, the sharp and bitter certainty of punishment to come. It's the sudden flood of terror through your body as it drowns you from within. It feels just like that moment, only instead of just a moment, it's forever. This is where you live now, and it's killing you about her PTSD. They are always watching you. They are waiting for your vigilance to waver. You are safe unless you look away. They'll get you if you ever close your eyes. You must not ever sleep again. And about being a sex crime victim, I didn't want to. I fought with all my strength. I hated you. Your clammy fingers and rancid breath filled me with disgust but i hate myself much more because i let you make me come my consciousness might be disintegrating heavy weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and i can't think straight things present themselves for a reason and i can't see straight i couldn't even drive the first movie that i remember watching with him post-traumatic stress when i was like five years old was pulp fiction <laughs> 
and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. With my Barbies. (laughs) The greatest source of our suffering. Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. It is very hard to heal in dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like... I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> I'm here with Re- Renee Johnson. It's so good to reconnect with you. You too. I'm so excited. I met Renee. Uh, she was a listener years ago living in the Bay Area. And I think you sent me an email saying, if you're ever up here, I have a couple of like recovery places I'd love to have you come speak at. And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And we hung out and just had uh, had a... Had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a shot in the dark for me because I had like been listening to your podcast obsessively at that time and was like, I think you had a show coming up or something. I'm like, you yeah, know we what? were doing live shows. Up yeah. There yeah. I was like, well, screw it. I'm just going to send an email. He probably won't respond. Um, but yeah, you came up twice and talked to the clients that I was working with and they were just loved it. And you brought like so much richness because they were so early in their recovery that it was really helpful to see somebody who farther along and living their life and doing different things than, than what they're used to. Yeah. It, it was, it was very gratifying. And I also felt, um, from them, I felt like, uh, you know, that, that energy when, even if you're the one who's a little bit further along, you still, uh, feel like an energy from them because it's just more people that, are like you, mm-hmm. even though the gender may be different or their stories may be different, mm-hmm. you're still struggling with self-esteem and productivity mm-hmm. and all the other bullshit mm-hmm. that we beat ourselves up about. Yeah. 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 So uh, one of the uh, met, uh, several reasons uh, I'm excited to sit down and talk to you, uh, one is you moved down here, you're a therapist now, mm-hmm. and you're specializing in LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. um struggles issues what would you mm-hmm. what would you call it you know it's always a hard thing to figure out what to call it because you don't want to call it like issues or problems because then it makes it sound like if you're queer then that's inherently right. a problem right. um but unfortunately a lot of our lived experience has a lot of trauma attached to it because we're in where in the place where we're at so yeah about a year ago um myself and some other amazing therapists that I've known for a very long time opened up a practice um, that specializes in working with queer, trans, and uh, BIPOC people. Um, and it's been a year, and it's been really awesome, and I'm just completely moved by working with them and also all the clients that, that have come through our doors and really um, really honoring us being vulnerable and watching their growth and their change. It's just been awesome. I was sharing with uh, Renee before we started recording is that you were the first person that ever said to me um, – and I guess we've been talking about trans issues, maybe. And you, and you were the first person that that ever opened up to me and said, um, "I don't identify as the gender that people see me as." And and I was, uh, it kind of caught me off guard because I had preconceived notions about what somebody looks like or sounds mm-hmm. like that doesn't identify as the, their gender assigned at birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that. You know, it's interesting when you said that because. Um, I had just started getting language for it. Um, I have known that I've been different my entire life, but in the 80s, that language wasn't around, Um, especially for being non-binary and gender fluid. Like I don't fit into any kind of category. 
Um, I don't hit either binaries and I'm not really totally androgynous either. And that really throws people. Um, and so it's been really beautiful in the last couple of years as more people are saying like, you know, gender is a construct and it's, and it's fake and you can live fluidly between all of the identities that are, that are made up in there to really be yourself. Um, and so it was really like, you know, eight years ago or whenever this was, it was a really beautiful thing to be able to tell somebody who is a cis man, like, Hey, I don't know you, but by the way, like this gender doesn't fit me. And you were just like, Oh, and I like ask questions and were very present instead of what typically I would get then and continue to get is like, Oh yeah, sure. Or, Oh, it's a fad or like, you don't look dot, dot, dot. Um, and so it was a really beautiful experience for me too, to, to have you just, sit with that and be in that space. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I'm always so afraid that I'm handling something um, ignorantly and, and I can't see it. I suppose everybody does, but I think especially as a straight white guy, um, you know, <laughs> we're kind of the, the stereotype of the person that doesn't get it mm-hmm. and thinks they get it. <laughs> um and obviously now I know that how somebody presents themselves, whether they're feminine or masculine or whatever, it's it's doesn't necessarily mean anything about who they identify inside. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the process like um, for you? What were the words that you began, maybe starting with childhood, mm-hmm. that you began to say that word feels right? that description feels right or or this doesn't feel right yeah it you know um one of the things that i can remember early on and um my mom would get so mad but not mad enough where she would scold me she just kind of storm away is she'd be like renee that's not very ladylike because i was doing something rambunctious and my response to her was well i'm not a lady and i'm not like which you know i was five or eight or something Um, but really pushing back on that of like this, what are you, what are you doing? This thing that you're trying to put on me doesn't fit. That doesn't work. Um, and even with like the chores that I have a younger brother, love him. He's wonderful. Um, that were split up was he had the boys chores and I had the girls chores. And all I wanted to do was go mow the lawn and do the, the, the bigger labory things because that was more fun and more active. Um, and I would be told, no, you can't do that. That's for boys. And it was always really confusing for me. Um, but there wasn't the language yet. And in high school. And did you feel anger? A lot of confusion. Yeah. Like in a lot of like, you know, when you wear an out, like a outfit that's too small and like you're just like squirmy and it doesn't fit. Yeah. Um, really like that. Like I don't understand what's happening. Um, and there's. A lot of other um, struggles in my childhood. My parents had a horrible marriage. My mother was very sick. My dad didn't handle it well. Um, your your mother was sick mentally or physically? Mentally. Um, yeah, she had a um, psychotic break when I was in second grade because um, she had a bunch of memories flood back um, of being molested when she was a child. And so she, our and it was the eighties, so antipsychotics weren't a thing yet. Um, and so it took a long time um, for her to find the right medication and find the right psychiatrist um, and get get the help and get back on her feet and, and moving. Um, that must have scared the shit out of you. Oh, it was horrible. Do you, it, can you, if you're comfortable yeah. describing it, can you describe yeah, what it, you remember? It was really, um, 
I do want to give both my parents credit. They had very little awareness or resources, but they they did try as much as they could. Um, but it was really scary. She um, ended up being diagnosed with um, borderline and OCD and PTSD um, and had psychotic features. And so she would see, we were a very religious household, she would see Jesus and Jesus was telling her to give her money away. Jesus was telling her to tackle me. Um, Jesus was telling her to like uh, run around and get out of the house. It was just really confusing. And so it was a lot of that or she was asleep on the couch for three weeks. Um, And as a kid, you're just kind of confused on like all of a sudden for the first handful of years of my life, she was like there and like hanging out and then all of a sudden was saying things that didn't make any sense and really aggressive. Um, and were you communicating with your dad about this or were you just everybody to themselves? They, my dad did a good job of saying, here's what's happening. Um, in a, in an age appropriate way. Um, and you were how old? I was in second grade. So I think that makes you like seven or eight. Um, I was the age that she was when she got molested, which is why the memories all came back. Um, and they did a good job of trying to get her out of the house when things were really bad. But she was a prior to this, she was a stay at home mom and he was um, working and bringing the money home. And he really tried for a, for a while. And, and then it just got overwhelming. And we were in a very tiny town in the middle of Iowa. Um, and so there's not a lot of support. It's the eighties. There's not a lot of understanding what's happening. Um, and so it was a lot of, he's working long hours and um, we're, stuck at home with mom and trying to stay at school later and go to friends later and kind of get away from the scary parts of it. And when you're a kid and you don't know anything about that, you know, when you hear secondhand that somebody's mom is quote unquote crazy, Mm -hmm. it fucking terrifies you because you don't know what that means. Yeah. You just know that there's something unpredictable and to you unsafe. Yeah, totally. And there was a lot of people that wouldn't talk to us. Um, there, my, my dad is very, um, much performer. He likes to look nice and shiny. They like to look like a perfect family at the church. So there was a performance of going to church on Sundays and Wednesdays and going to, he worked at a college. So going to the college events and like putting on the, like we're great and happy and everything's fine face. Um, and then she would crack and things would go sideways or people would see it. Um, or she wouldn't be around. And the and would it be obvious what people would see in public? You know, it's hard for me to say. Um, I think even when she wasn't psychotic, um, things were really off. And I think if you spent any amount of time with her, you could really tell. Um, and, you know, but I was in grade school, so it's hard for me to know what the adults were seeing. I just knew that a lot of people kept us at an arm's distance. And then some of the other kids would be like, oh, my parents don't like your parents. Or, um, oh, you're you're one of you're one of those people. No, I'm not going to hang, hang out with you or I'm not going over to your house or you know, those little things that you kind of pick up in kid language where you're like, oh, I didn't, I also didn't know that that was different than anybody else's home life. Um, because the people I was around were all people who were very, very strict religious. So life was already kind of weird and very private. Um, 
And so it took me a long time to kind of get clued into other people have a different reality than this. Yeah. And, and kids especially don't have a sense of what is moderate and appropriate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And a lot of adults don't as well. <laughs> yeah. Myself included. <laughs> yeah. I think at 40, I'm still trying to figure yes. that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as, as, so you've got this context of you're growing up in this, uh, in this family where there's uh, a lot of turmoil, chaos, mm-hmm. um, confusion mm-hmm. and then you've got confusion going on inside you mm-hmm. about who you are the words that you would use to describe yourself yeah it really came to a head once puberty hit um i am a very feminine figured person um and the religion that my parents ascribed to and being in the midwest um was I went from like being able to go play kickball in the yard with all the neighborhood kids to um, I was automatically a slut. I was automatically shamed for everything. I was automatically by, by wrong. Uh, parents, uh, teachers, uh, other because, because kids. you were developed or yeah, what? like there was just this very clear like fear. What I can say now, like a very clear fear of um, like the female body or an AFAB body um, that had so much moral judgment attached to it. Um, what, and what was the word you used in A? AFAB, assigned female at birth. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, that it got even more confusing. And during that time, I was also going through the very um, puritanical, don't have sex before marriage, to completely disassociate from your body. Your body is a sin. Everything you're doing is wrong. That things like, do I want to be Gwen Stefani or do I want to be on Gwen Stefani started, started to come <laughs> right. up. Um, and I, especially towards like the end of high school, um, I would say a lot of things or express a lot of things that now are not, I realize are very not appropriate, but a lot of, um, I'm a girl, but you know, I'm a guy or like I'm one of the boys and yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got boobs, but really I've got a dick. Um, and really saying these things, not realizing what I was saying, but it was a continual like subconscious leak of how I was feeling. Um, and it brought in a lot of shame, not necessarily because of the gender, like hadn't even gotten that far yet, but really because of, the religious demonization of the body I was born into. Yeah. It's uh, like doubly bad. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. bad because you have the, the, the female body. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then on top of it, because you. Yeah. Are imagining that it's something else or wishing it were something mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what, um, did you, were you attracted to all genders? Back then, what what was what were you feeling, and what did you think you should be feeling? Um, it took me until college to or past college to realize that um, I was attracted to all genders. Um, at the time, I thought they were just close girlfriends, uh, or like they were really cool, or I really like them, or oh, this is just a really special relationship. Um, and I don't. 
I had like boyfriends in high school, um, but it was I. There was so much shame. I just dove deeper into the religious aspect of it and disassociated even more from anything I was um, feeling attraction wise, anything I was feeling gender wise. And I ended up going from a Baptist, um, very Baptist cult like um, background and converted into Mormonism um, because I just needed to be good enough so God wouldn't keep making my life so hard. Wow. Yeah. I never knew that about you. Yeah. It was intense. Um, and that was, you know, it's looking back now, it's been a long time. Um, it's, I didn't have the language for trauma yet either. That wasn't being talked about yet. I knew things were bad or, and I knew they were different, but it was still, okay, I need to, something's wrong with me. So I need to continue to be better and be more strict and live more strictly. And then I'll be, um, in a life situation that isn't so cruel. Um, Mormonism was not the answer. And <laughs> marrying a Mormon man was also not Spoiler. the answer. <laughs> yeah. <Spoiler>. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then what's the, what's the next phase of um, your evolution in terms of uh, embracing who you are or denying who you are and the words around it? So I was really... Um, I was really lucky in, I jumped around a bunch in college to different schools. Surprise, trauma people have a hard time staying put. Um, and during one of the schools that I went to, I had two really, really good friends, and um, Luke and Lars. And Lars was in the closet at the time, quickly came out the second we got out of college, um, is married to a wonderful woman. Um, and when I finally was like, I need to get rid of all, all of this religious shit and just try and be a human and see who's in there. Um, both of them with open arms were like, yeah, come move up to Minneapolis and, and be with us and let's see what happens. That must have felt amazing. It was amazing. They're like, you know, this is well over 20 years ago and they're still um, uh, more of a savior to me than Jesus ever will be. Uh, and it that space and those like that non-judgment and that silliness. Um, that they both have that's very playful really allowed me to try different things, um, but not in a way of like, I need to come out or I need to do this formal explanation of anything. It was just like, just be you and we'll roll with whatever. Today happens. I'll try a mustache. Yeah, exactly. I think that girl is cute. We need to talk about what that means. It was, it. Um, they didn't need that. Um, and they were there for whatever was, was happening. Isn't it amazing how just somebody's vibe mm -hmm. can affect us so much? Mm -hmm. It's it's almost like a, a subconscious message to, okay, lighten the fuck up. Yeah. Doesn't mean ignore <laughs> the issue, but it's not all life or death, but yeah. it feels like it when we feel like an outsider. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, yeah. Lighten the fuck up. I feel like uh, I deserve to, or they deserve to have some shirts. Yeah. Without printed across it. <laughs> I saw my favorite shirt that I ever saw was this guy had one that said, if you met my family, you'd understand. <laughs> that's pretty like, great. Oh, that's, a, that's a good one. But yeah, I have a friend in, in my support group. He's he's my mentor. And uh, sometimes he'll just say, why don't you just lighten the fuck up and smile <laughs> a little bit more? And it makes me laugh because oftentimes that's that's what I need. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's amazing how you can just get stuck in the digging loop and digging loop and examining yeah. loop and then all of a sudden you're just can't get out of it yeah 
So, so what next? So you meet these uh, two people, you go up and you, you live with them or hang out with them in Minneapolis. Yeah. Uh, and you're beginning to feel freer. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're not doing anything necessarily like, oh, I'm going to experiment with this. You're just ha- living and having an open mind and trying not to assign judgment to yeah. choices. Yeah, which that alone was a the biggest change I've ever experienced. Um, and I had um, ended up dating a few women while I was up there, um, was able to play a little bit more in not the stereotypical femme, spl- femme places. Um, and it was really relieving. And it was nice to just be in that that space for a while. Um, fast forward a bunch. It wasn't until maybe, you know, 10 years after that, which would be about 10 years ago, um, right before we were meeting, um, I had moved to the Bay Area. And... Um, transness and non-binariness was really being talked about a lot more. And the ability to not just go from a born female and transition to a very strict male role. And it was a really relieving thing to have people start talking about it and have people start saying like, oh yeah, this is how I've also felt forever. And, um, say like you don't have to fit just because you don't fit in this place doesn't mean you have to fit in the other one either you can have your identity be fluid if that's what feels right and that's what's what feels aligned would would that be like the idea of a continuum yeah i think so i think you know i don't really fit anywhere um, which after the religious experience is a very comfortable place for me. Um, but it really allows for a lot of examination of like clothes don't have a gender. Like we just assign that. And so thinking of how you're dressing yourself more is like the whole thing is drag and what do you want to do with it today? And the whole life is art. And so just because you're identifying or your core self feels this way doesn't mean that on Halloween I have to stay that way. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that on I need to look a certain way when I'm going to work or going out with friends or it's Tuesday or it's Wednesday. And you can really use your outward appearance as an artful expression. And that's not a comment on what box you're trying to squeeze into. So much of society's pushback is thinking that it's about them when they see somebody <laughs> on the street that is, you know, quote unquote odd. Mm-hmm. They think, oh, they're they're trying to throw it in our face. Mm-hmm. Ne- it never occurs to them that that person that might just be how they feel comfortable. Yeah, and, it's yeah. bizarre. Um, yeah, I was listening to the episode you did with Jesse, who was talking about non-binary and. Um, non-monogamy and like the uh, meeting that you went to and you had a trans person come with you and somebody screamed and left the meeting because it's just like it has nothing where does that even come from like somebody that dude is just living his life going to a meeting trying to get his shit together and somehow someone else has made it about them and it has gotten really aggressive um and extra sad that it's in a support group yeah, meeting. Yeah, it's just it's such a mind fuck. 
Um, but we rallied around uh, that yes. trans man that, yeah. that, that, that was there. And uh, while he never came back, um, he he knew that he was loved there and, and that we and that we had his back and that we wanted him to yeah. come back. But I totally get why somebody would be like, nope, that yeah. building's not for me. Yeah. But also, like, what a healing experience to have people come up in that meeting and be like, oh, no, we want you here. Fuck that guy. Like those things have lasting impact, even if it was too much for him to go back to that meeting. Um, that stuff really makes a difference. I had a friend um, who, when I uh, had switched switch my pronouns to they, them, and I just kind of like text everybody, I was like, hey, this shouldn't be a surprise, blah. Um, <laughs> By the way, I, I'm not even aware of what pronouns I have, have used uh, for you since you walked in the door. So yeah. apologies if I. Uh, no worries. Yes, I figured. Um, yeah. No worries. With We're you. here to talk yes. about gender. I'm not going to yes. like <laughs> worry yes. about that. Um, but it was, you know, it's really sweet. He's like, oh, we need to talk on the phone right now. And was just very much like this really affirming and like this makes so much sense to me. And like outlined different parts of um, our relationship and things that we've done together and how I move around the world. And it wasn't um, – he's a, a cis dude and it wasn't any type of um, him making it about him. It was, hey, I love you. How I'm trying to figure out how to meet you here. Oh, I get this. I see you. Um, and it was such a powerful, beautiful thing that um, – That you broke up. No, no, he's gay. He's not, not interested in me at all. Uh, but no, it, that stuff st that stays with you. And it's yeah. a small thing that he probably doesn't remember, but that 10-minute conversation will stay with me forever. Yeah. I mean, is there anything, does anything feel better than somebody loving you, not despite the thing that causes you anxiety, but because that's a part of you? Yeah. that That is uh, an amazing feeling. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's so terrifying sometimes to reveal that side of yourself that you're like, oh, this, this is, mm -hmm. you know, nobody, nobody will love me if they know, mm -hmm. you know, this about me or that about me. Yeah. Yeah. It can be really scary. And it's also by the time you get the enough insight into where you are and who you are and what you want to do, then it's okay. I got to tell people, hope they don't reject me. And deal with all their shit on top of it. Right. Um, you know, as as we're talking, like, when I was in high school, I was very, like, anti-gay. Um, and it had a lot to do with the environment I was brought up in. But it also had to do with, like, a lot of what I was repressing. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm always wondering how much shame is being enacted out on somebody else when these aggressive things are done, um, whether it's politically or, or personally. Um, and it's really sad that we don't have a culture that celebrates that exploration um, and just really continues to support the, the shame spiral that happens. So how many years ago was it when you began adopting they, them? Um, I did the she, they thing for a while and just kind of like sneaky snuck it out there mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, Meaning either or. Either or. And, you know, living in the Bay Area, everybody's kind of on the gender bendy spectrum of some sort. So it didn't matter. And it wasn't really until I moved down here. And that is not the case down here. 
that I was like, oh, I need to actually make this a point. Um, and so it's been three years um, since it's just fully transitioned over to they, them. And it's really um, has made no difference in my personal life, which is great because I have wonderful chosen family. Um, but I think in building new community and in starting the therapy practice and in really saying like, no, this is, this is who I am and this is where I fit and I will, I'm just going to label this. So it's really clear, um, from day one. It's also helped, um, help some of the trauma of childhood stuff because I, I feel really safe when I can hide. Um, because being seen meant getting hurt and hiding behind a she, they pronoun, um, let was safe for a while, but then it turned into people projecting their own stuff, femme stuff on me that, w- that wasn't fitting. Uh, how, how so? Um, even there's so much gender bias when I was working in nonprofits, it was really clear that the the women in nonprofit got pushed to the caretaking and the lower paid roles and the dismissed and the male identifying people were um, pushed up in leadership. And the there was a huge difference between whose ideas were being respected and who was getting trained up and all of those things. And in the process of being like, I'm not buying into any of or either of those, um, it's been kind of fun to make people uncomfortable, especially when building a business as I'm working with coaches or I hired Google ads company and they're doing really uh, bigoted stuff and being like, no, 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 you can't dismiss this because I'm a woman and you can't hold this up higher than it is because I'm a man. You just have to kind of look at it and be really uncomfortable. Um, Still, if you want a promotion, go, go by DM. <laughs> just briefly. That's just a little tip. A little tip from me. You're not selling out your people. That's just just about money. It's just business, like they say in The Godfather. Absolutely. Uh, that must have been incredibly frustrating and, and, and angering. But you also seem like somebody who uh, kind of can take a chill pill sometimes and, and take the long view, or am I wrong? No, totally. Um, I, you know, the... Having a mom who's been so sick for so long, you really kind of learn to shake off the bullshit and really be like, okay, does this matter? Does this not matter? Am I going to care in 72 hours or am I not? Um, And so when somebody's doing something shady because of a gender projection, like, yeah, it sucks in the moment for a minute, but I'm, I'm not hanging on to that. That's like I went for a walk down the L.A. River today. And I pulled my phone out to take a video of like how beautiful it was. And some guy on a bike rides by and like, you're so hot. I'm like, dude, fuck off. I'm just trying to take a, like a video of a bird. Um, but Now explain that to, I understand, explain, and I wouldn't have 15 years ago. I'd be like, why don't you want to compliment? And, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to unpack, you know. <laughs> All this shit that I needed to let go of and be educated about, and I'm sure I still need more education about it, but talk to uh, somebody who's listening, probably a dude, uh, who is like, she got a compliment. That's not a compliment. 
Um, and, and explain that. <laughs> explain that. It is, um, especially, especially as somebody who uh, doesn't identify as a gender, one, you're saying, I see you as something you're not. And two, I am going to yell at you in public. Three, I'm going to let you know that not only do I see you as a gender that I, I'm not, but I also see you as something that I can touch and think about and um, dominate. Mm-hmm. And for if like we don't ever even talk about like sexual trauma stuff in here, but it's you don't know who you're giving this horrible you're yelling this horrible statement to like this dude has no idea what he's bringing up or triggering in me, which um, instantly I go into like get triggered and go into childhood trauma space. Um, And that's horrible. So he's feeling really good about himself being like, Mm -hmm. you don't need to take a video. You're too hot. No, actually you've just completely ruined my next 25 minutes as I try and get myself out of a trauma trigger space. It, it's uh, to to somebody who doesn't under understand it. I would you know maybe a phrase that I I would say is uh, they're not a car at a car show. <laughs> you know, so, yell so that clear. about a car at a yeah, car show. Totally, but people are a little more complicated, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. it's and they don't probably give a fuck what you think Mm-mm. about them Mm-mm. about them. Anyway, and I, and I think also a lot of people, typically men, don't haven't had the lived experience of someone who is sexualized. Some men have, mm-hmm. um, but not institutionally. Mm-hmm. And and I think that piece, if society is going to kind of move forward, I think there there needs to be a way for that to be communicated mm-hmm. to. The men who, you know, probably aren't criminals, aren't no. beating their kids or, you know, they're mm-hmm. they're a nice enough person, but they're just ignorant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and I'm sure this person was too, just a normal dude in the world um, and has been taught and it's been normalized like this is a compliment. Um, and that just gets continues to get reinforced. And so the more I think. You know, the more cis dudes that can be like, yo, dude, that's not cool, um, the better. Because they're going to also dismiss any time an AFAB person or a woman says, don't do that. Like, when I was living in New York, the catcalls were insane. Um, So it's not a stereotype. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I always assumed that was, I knew it existed, but I was just assumed that was a trope. No, I wish. Yeah. and there was a period where I'd yell back at them and they would get mad. They would dismiss what I was saying. They'd tell me that I like it anyway. Um, and it, so it doesn't, even me saying don't do that uh, gets dismissed and then another boundary cross is, is happening. Another violation is happening. So it's not going to, that healing process for men is not going to come from somebody like me. It's going to come from you. Well, I just burped. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Um, so let's talk about your your work as a as a therapist. Um, did you consciously uh, get into um, a therapy space 
where you want to help uh, the queer community, the queer and trans community? Um, or did it evolve into that? Um, I guess a little of both. In when I was living in the Bay Area, it wasn't needed because everybody's some sort of gay. Um, and moving down here, um, we had um, my partner and I had actually in uh, January 2020 moved to Singapore, and we're supposed to live, be living in Singapore for two years. <laughs> Renee was uh, telling me about this before we started recording. Yeah. And um, my partner was on a postdoc, and I thought I needed a break from the mental health world. I'd been working in nonprofits for 10 years. The system was exhausting, um, and I was going to take a break, and I wasn't sure if I was going to come back. Uh, we were there for two to three months, and then lockdown happened, and I was in a hot apartment for six months. Um, but ended up coming to L.A. and being like, yeah, you know, I really miss working with clients. I really miss that, like, very personal journey. I find it really powerful and purposeful and important. And so I started seeing um, clients' private practice, and I filled up so fast because they're – and what people that um, came to see me was like, there are no queer or trans competent therapists out there. There are people that will say – there are therapists that will say, oh, yeah, I'm like – queer and trans friendly, no problem. But then I'll spend the 45-minute session educating them on what the queer and trans experience is like. And I don't need to pay a therapist to educate them. Um, and so it was really clear that, one, this is my community. Um, and two, there's there's a hole here. And so the therapists that... Um, I brought on are all part of the queer um, community, part of the BIPOC community. Um, what, what was the last word you said? BIPOC. So we, I, I am myself a uh, very transparent white person, um, but the other oh, people, person people, of color. Yeah, person of color. Okay. Um, but the other therapists, some of the other therapists that I work with, um, come from a bunch of different um, cultural backgrounds because I can talk to the white queer and trans experience. I can't talk to the black queer and trans experience. And um, that's also a really big need. Um, and I think that that is with any kind of therapy, the the best therapist that you can work with are somebody who shares some level of your lived experience. I mean, I think that's a huge part of why 12-step programs are so good is because there's a shared lived experience. So you're not starting from scratch. You're starting from a place of understanding. Yeah, could, could not agree more. So uh, what does the bi refer to in bi? Um, black indigenous people of color. Okay. Uh, it must have been exciting uh, when you realized what a need you were going to fill for yeah. people. Yeah. Or am I wrong? No, it is. Um, something I've always wanted and... Um, I'm kind of that person anyway, is like having a bunch of community around me. And um, I have amazing community in the Bay, um, great community here. Um, and cr the the bigger picture for us is to, yes, provide um, the individual therapy and the group therapy for this place, but also um, our, our hope is to expand and have a more community space where it can be a hub for people to land and people to hang out and make relationships and build connections with and build a bigger community. So outside of the paid yeah, 45 minute. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're trying to figure out like what the next steps are. And so the maybe easiest entry is to having um, 
you know, like a coffee shop that also has like therapy offices in the back. You can spend your $2 to get a cup of coffee and then hang out there all day and meet people and somebody can have a writing group or it can be a stitch and bitch or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Um, But really have more than just the individual therapy because while therapy is important, it's not going to work if you don't have a solid community around you. Yeah. You got to, you got to road test the car. You just, (laughs) you're you're reading the manual about And yes, the, the, the experience with the therapist, you know, can be a template for intimacy and transparency and non-judgment, sure. but ultimately, yeah, yeah, you, you need to road test at other, other places. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're, you know, something I say to the clients who come and see me and the therapists that in our collective all say is that, um, there will be a point where you are bored of me and you are done with therapy. And that is my goal is you don't need me anymore. Um, because any therapist who's like, you need to see me forever. There's just so much stuff is, does not have your best interest in heart. Yeah. Especially if they say it creepy. Yeah. Especially. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what are some of the common anxieties that your clients come in with? Um, or confusions. mm -hmm. A lot of it. Um, so I work a lot with gender identity and identity development, um, and I work a lot with artists and it's a lot of people are coming in, in a place of like, my gender is not exactly what I was assigned with at birth. And I'm nervous to start talking about it. I'm nervous what it means to start living a little bit differently. I'm nervous if I'm going to get rejected by the people in my life. Um, I'm nervous if I try something or shift my appearance or lifestyle or identity in a different way and that doesn't fit and I change something um, that I'm going to get judged for it. And so a lot of people are coming in looking for a space to explore that. Um, A lot of um, queer and trans people have a ton of trauma. And so also figuring out where where the trauma ends and the the self and the identity begin and really pulling those things apart is a huge piece of it. And like your identity is not a result of your trauma. Um, there's been, I think a really important thing is like we may think our personality is hypervigilance and very type a and making sure that everybody around us is okay and happy. And it's like, no, those are actually trauma responses. And if we pull the need to do those away, where is your identity and who are you? Um, and so really allowing to shed those things. So yes, your gender identity can shine, but also your full personality can too. Do you ever get to a point with a client where you think to yourself, I think there's trauma that's nonverbal and this isn't going to be talked out. I need mm-hmm. to suggest either additional therapy, a different mm-hmm. modality. Mm-hmm. What have you? Absolutely. Um, so I am an art therapist and so we'll use a lot of art therapy things when we hit those points. Um, we have another art therapy and our, another art therapist in our practice. We also have a dance movement therapist in our practice. Um, one of the other therapists, um, is, um, very somatic based. And so we have, um, a lot of our practitioners are trained in things that aren't verbal um, because it's, there's so much more than that. And our body holds so much more than that. And our subconscious has a whole different story than, than our conscious mind does. And really getting to all of those different parts, um, and letting 
all of that come to the table and all be respected is really important. Um, and so whether it's through art making or through somatic or work or um, we have an EMDR specialist, like using a bunch of different mod- modalities. Um, and what I use isn't going to fit for everybody. And so it's also finding what fits for you. And if I hit something that I'm like, you know, this is kind of beyond my skill set, I'll, I'll find a, somebody that I can be like, this other therapist is a badass that really can help you and help that transition process. Do any particular success stories come to mind? Somebody that um, got the most that they could out of the therapeutic process, especially in terms of whether it's trauma or um, any anything else, but particularly, I think, around uh, gender, being a part of the queer community. Yes. I'm going to try and say this so I don't violate any HIPAA things. Right. Um, there is somebody that I, um, started working with when I first moved to LA about three years ago, um, who was a a trans woman. Um, she's incredible. She came to me for a relationship therapy that was in a very toxic relationship. And that relationship was mimicking patterns, um, of her childhood trauma. And that included her, um, cis um, woman partner um, projecting extra feminine dainty identities on her. And so she was being over feminized. Even as a trans woman, she was being over feminized by her partner and um, the client. And we will still check in once a month or as she, as she needs um, is like a punk rock bitch. Like she's Mm -hmm. like a big music head, very alt, great fashion sense but isn't interested in like rainbows and puppies and cutes and curlies and all of those things and so it was also in that place of let's pull the trauma reenactment out of this dynamic they ended up splitting up um and let's also say your your identity as a woman doesn't have to be this pretty makeup cutesy thing um and she's um now in a place where she was so people pleasing and so afraid to let any part of herself out because she thought she was just going to destroy everybody um, to um, having um, really great relationships. Um, She's a non-monogamous person. So has two really great partners um, that she feels very like validated and supported by and doesn't feel like she needs to people please and caretake to get that love and acceptance. Um, And that's huge. It's, um, it's one of those things that I I can only tell her that a little bit without it being boundary crossing or inappropriate. Right, right, right. right? No, it, it felt like it but, was general enough that yeah. Uh, I'll ask you for her uh, her name and yeah. social security yeah. after we're done mm-hmm. talking. Um, <laughs> you know, as you were sharing that with me, the, the the thought occurred to me: Has there ever been anybody in therapy who, who a part of their success in being in there hasn't involved them identifying what they like mm. and and not apologizing for it or crossing other people's boundaries trying trying to get it mm-hmm. it, it seems like such a universal thing at least for people pleasers yeah yeah it's huge it's also you know i think it goes for definitely for people pleasers but also for people who um don't know how to get that for themselves so they cross other people's boundaries to try and get it externally from somebody else and to be like 
Paul, you can't give me what I, I need, so I'm going to be mad at you, and then I'm going to try and go get it from somebody else. It's like, no, I need to figure out what I need and be able to right. give that to myself. Yeah. Yeah, I heard in one of my support groups, uh, be the person you want to date before <laughs> before you get out there into the dating pool. Mm-hmm. Are mm-hmm. you? Do you resemble at all what you're mm-hmm. looking for? And Absolutely. if not, take some time alone and, yeah. and, and work on yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and why? Like, why are you expecting somebody to have lower standards than you have. Because if you won't date you, why are you trying to date somebody who would date you? Well, that's a deep one. Wow. Is that another t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> would you date you? <laughs> I saw somebody with a tote the other day that's like, I go to therapy because you won't. That's- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anything else you want to share? Where can people get a hold of you? Because you do uh, tele sessions, correct? Yeah. Um, so, or are you all full up now? Uh, no, we have. We just hired a, another therapist about a month ago, okay. um, and so everybody's got. She's got a bunch of openings, um, and then our a few of our other therapists have a couple openings. Um, you can find us at OpenSpaceTherapyCollective.com. dot um, We are on Instagram, TikTok. Um, we started a our own podcast called My Therapist is Out, uh, which is not as polished as yours, but we are trying. Um, and so, yeah. You can, and is it therapist talking to therapists? Yeah, it's um, the our first uh, dozen episodes or so are our therapists talking to each other. And we've really realized, like, wait, this is a great community building tool. So we're going to start um, talking with other queer artists and business owners and community builders um, this winter. So that'll be really, really That's fun so and exciting. Cool. And I yeah. think lay people would be interested in just hearing how the way the therapists talk yeah. talk to each other, yeah. how you talk about it behind <laughs> our backs. <laughs> we were talking about doing a, a, like a therapist after dark episode with therapist horror stories. Um, that's, oh, that would be great. Yeah. Did you do one like once a month or yeah. one, once a year? Oh, people would love yeah. I get them through the surveys, yeah. Um, but yeah, I imagine you guys, because you're sharing them from the opposite. I we get them about the therapists who are horror stories, but we never get to hear the client. I mean, but it's also we don't have any clients that are horror stories, even if they're because it's a space where the client, like maybe we will get an asshole every once in a while, but that's like a five minute conversation. They don't stick around. What we get is on it, you know, similar to your surveys is. Oh, by the way, I was seeing this therapist who said they were queer informed and f- a month in, they told me that they were here to pray the gay away. Oh. And so what they are, or like therapists that we'll like consult with. Um, I just talked to a client that I see individually. I talked to their um, couple's counselor who misgendered them the whole time. And I'm just, wow. yeah. So now we'll probably just rag on other therapists. Yeah. <laughs> um. So give us the uh, the website one more time. OpenSpaceTherapyCollective.com. Open Space Therapy Collective. And, and uh, Renee will give us all the links and stuff. I know people are going to try to get you as their therapist after <laughs> listening to this. So I just wanted to say to them, keep your hopes low because I imagine uh, Renee's schedule is, is pretty packed. But uh, one of the uh, support group meetings that we do with people uh, people sometimes for the for the podcast is they were talking about how difficult it can be 
to find a therapist mm-hmm. for our, you know, mm-hmm. whatever somebody's particular issue is, especially mm-hmm. if, it, if it's, if it's really specific. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, it's so hard. Yeah. We're, I'm, um, very picky. So everybody that, that works at our collective is an excellent therapist and I fully back them. Um, which is, we've interviewed so many therapists and there are very few really good therapists out there. And so, um, I, I feel, I feel that struggle. Um, but our, our crew is, is really solid. So if I'm not available, somebody else awesome will be. Thanks, Renee. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Many, many thanks. Is that, uh, am I being redundant? I don't give a shit. That's, that's a holiday spirit kicking in. What am I talking about? I do that pretty much every single episode. Let's uh, take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is from the struggle in a... uh, I've read that one already. I'm losing it. I'm slipping. I'm slipping. This is from the fears survey, and this is filled out. By Hazel K. I wonder if this is Hazel from the other, the other one. I think this might be Hazel, even though she didn't put a K on her name from the other survey. But uh, share something you fear. From my very first conscious memory, I existed in a state of perpetual, constant terror. But I never recognized it as such until shortly after I turned nine and set myself on fire precipitating a sequence of events which culminated in my going to stay with my grandmother, quote, for a few weeks, unquote, which turned out to be, quote, forever, unquote, or until I finished high school anyway. Because I had gone to live somewhere else and had the chance to breathe a different sort of air for a while, I had no context by which to distinguish terror from being alive having never for a moment experienced anything else because I have never in my life feared anything even slightly as much as I feared my fucking mother. All other fears seemed so diminished and pathetic in comparison that to to this day, it seems almost silly to use the same word for them. I was terrified of her even while utterly dependent on her to survive. I remained terrified of her long after I had left home, and now, as she's been dead for 15 years, she still terrifies me. On occasion, I will see her in a dream, and even though she has never done anything to hurt me in a dream, every single time I wake up to find 
I've wet the fucking bed. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Fuck. This is from the love survey. This is filled out by Spinning Cubit. And they write, I love helping my super intelligent co-worker solve a problem that has been stressing them out. The transition from super tense and stressed to relieved and elated is such a priceless moment. Love it. Love it. That's the thing I love about service, too. You know, as opposed to like trying to change someone or trying to be controlling. Like true service, letting go of the outcome, just trying to help, is it helps everybody. Everybody. Or at least the person who is helping, I know, at the very least, it helps it helps them. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by Lala. Uh, she identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. Uh, she says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Uh, she writes, I was abused by my dad since I was a toddler to about nine years old. I only started remembering a year or so ago. I don't know if he remembers. I think I triggered him and he would snap, beat me, rape me, force oral. I feel so sick and so disgusting. I've never reported him. When I was 13, he was almost 30. Oh, this is a separate one. When I was 13, he was almost 30. I was groomed by my coach. We were in a relationship for three and a half years. The best way to describe it was a classic domestic violence relationship, and I just happened to be a kid. He love-bombed me, eventually started beating me. But the mornings after he beat me, I loved how he would hold me and tell me he loved me. I know I'm so fucked up. I did report, he and he ran from the state. Last I checked, his warrant is no longer active. Wow. Wow. She's been physically abused and emotionally abused. My dad beat the hell out of me often. I still have scars on my back from his belt. My mom didn't do anything. My therapist has been using the word torture. I never thought of it as that, but it was torturous. He is very emotionally manipulative. My coach also beat me. He dislocated my shoulder and broke my wrist on separate occasions. He was also extremely emotionally abusive. His words have lasted. His words have left deeper scars than his fists. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes. When I won, my dad would give me the biggest, truest hug. He was proud of me. And that was the only time his love felt real. My coach and I had a lot of good times. He made me feel like I was on top of the world at times. He made me laugh. I thought I loved him. I thought he loved me. It makes it all very complicated. My coach has been out of my life for years, and I don't know if I should cut contact with my dad. He hasn't touched me in years, and I know he's been through a lot. I think that would be a good thing to work through with a therapist because, man, uh, being in your formative years, being raised with so much abuse and gaslighting and conditional, you know, love, what seems like love, but, you know, I think to a, a person who was raised in a healthy environment, I think they probably read what, 
what you're writing and say, that does not sound like love. That sounds like, like grooming and manipulation. Um, I forgot my, I, I don't know where I was going with that. Darkest thoughts. Uh, I fantasize and I used to fantasize a lot as a kid uh, that my parents die. Darkest secrets. Sometimes I made my coach angry on purpose. I could feel the tension building, and sometimes I craved the morning after when he would love me. That is so heartbreaking. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Me being raped, older men dominating me, BDSM, sharing that, uh, ugh, I'm disgusting. You are not disgusting. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Why didn't you stop him? I'd ask my mom. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I had normal parents. Have you shared these things with others? Not really. Only my therapist and support group knows about my dad. I can't tell anyone. I'm too scared. I really, really, really hope that you can one day find the courage to do that. And it, you know what? If... If you're listening and you don't, that's okay too. But I have the feeling if you did, um, that it would, it would help you process these things. And, um, you know, last night I was in one of my support groups and kind of the topic of conversation, a lot of people were like three or four people were new to the meeting and they were sharing stuff that they had held on to their entire lives and the tears were flowing and the tear and the people listening there were tears flowing and it the thing that was so beautiful to me was these new people who grew up with very little love were experiencing love and support from people that they were meeting for the first time and it's one of the most beautiful things that that I get to see on a on a regular basis. And there was a time when I was that new person, snot crying and letting the things come out of my mouth that I never thought I would say to another human being because I just felt so weird and different. How do you feel after writing these things down? I don't know. Kind of disgusting. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? My therapist tells me she sees a future when I'm not in constant pain and not always suffering. That helps me get through my dark nights. Your therapist sounds like, like a good egg and somebody who's, who's safe. I really, I really hope you, you give it a shot and, uh, tell your therapist what's, what's really going on, what you're holding back. This is from the love survey filled out by, uh, crow's feet. And, uh, they write, I love the way that children scream in delight. Like, yes, go off, you tiny psychos. Let the whole neighborhood know that you just jumped really far or ran really fast and that you're having the best time ever. I love that one. 
I love rewatching favorite movies over and over. It's such comfort because I know that no matter what is happening in my life, those movies will never change. My favorite action movie isn't going to suddenly turn into a cry-your-eyes-out drama. My favorite comedy isn't going to, out of nowhere, become a jump-scare-filled horror movie. My parents, day-to-day, minute-to-minute sometimes, seem to morph into different people. Eight years old and I'm walking home from school, wondering which version of my dad will be waiting for me in the kitchen. But a movie is a movie is a movie. And I love that my favorite films will never hurt me. That is so good. Damn. Thank you for that. This is from the Fears Survey. And this is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Brooklyn Storm. And she writes, I fear that my boys will feel abandoned, though they've told me they love living with their aunt. I fear that every time I reach peace, it's just a cycle of trauma rebooting itself, and the next one will be the last. I fear I'll be dissociating and get stuck in that state for too long and end up in a hospital alone and forgotten. I fear a psychotic break in which I kill someone close to me. I fear I'll give in to that voice telling me I deserve to go back to the abusive relationship it took a decade to get out of. I fear my boyfriend will turn, like a switch will flip, and he'll be a reflection of my abusive relationships of the past. I fear I'll never accomplish any of my dreams simply because I can't start a project like a blog or podcast without the perfect name, and it's already taken. Thank you for those. Yeah, man. The the way that perfectionism can make us just freeze and shut down never ceases to amaze me and kudos on getting out of your abusive relationship these are loves filled out by ampersand soup and they write i love rainbow sprinkles clean underwear a new pair of socks i love that one the pulling sensation when doing a deep stretch Realizing my period is finally over. Finding a new song to play over and over. Tart lemonade. And reading old journal entries and seeing how I've changed. Thank you for those. I especially love the finding a new song to play over and over again. I think more people do that than, than we realize. I always think I'm a, I'm a fucking weirdo for playing the same song over and over again. After I first heard uh, Paranoid Android by Radiohead, I must have played that 10 times a day for like two weeks. And, and that song still blows my mind. How, how, first of all, just great it is to listen to, but how intricate and complex it is musically. And there's a video of Tom York doing it solo. I think it was at like uh, one of Neil Young's uh, fundraising events. Uh, And he goes out. I mean, the guitar part is really complicated. And he's singing while he's playing this complicated guitar part. And I'm just like, what planet is he from? This is from the uh, Shame and Secret survey. And this is filled out by a guy who calls himself, they call me Brian at Starbucks. 
go to Starbucks, Brian. Well, some people actually don't. That's the that's the best that coffee gets in their uh, in their town. Did that sound snobby? I meant it too. Uh, Brian identifies as uh, straight, and he also writes, "There's a little bisexual in there too, or at least I'm attracted frequently to gender fluid type people, but mostly women." Uh, he says that he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. It was one of the worst types of dysfunctional, the type that's invisible to the outside world and that makes you feel like the crazy one for thinking it's fucked up. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. No explicit sexual abuse that I know of or remember, but I have never really felt 100% safe with my mother. I do wonder if she did something to me when I was a small kid that I have just buried somewhere deep and inaccessible. I've been thinking about this more lately because I recently learned that she was the victim of sexual abuse herself from a teacher as a child. I think this may explain, if not excuse, some of the odd and unsettling things she said to me over the years and the fact that her touch, especially since I became a teenager, but before that too, always felt invasive somehow. To this day, she tends to touch me too much, even when I make it clear, verbally and non-verbally, that I don't want to be touched right then. She also has crossed some boundaries emotionally, certainly. She became far too personally invested in prying into the details of my dating life as a young man, saying sexual and inappropriate things about girls in my life. Come to think of it, she did this when I was a kid, too. Out of nowhere, one day, she started talking to me about a girl on my swim team that I had a crush on. I hadn't told her this, but she must have figured it out. And she was, went out of her way to call the girl ugly. This was a 12- or 13-year-old girl, and one particular comment she made to another adult that I overheard as a kid always stuck in my mind. She was a preschool teacher at the time and has worked in education most of her life. In parentheses, dramatic pause to let that detail soak in. In fact, she frequently described herself as a protector of children. Moving on. Uh, on that particular day, I must have been about 10 or 11 at the time, she said to a parent in her class, children are sexual from the time they are born. This is something an educator could certainly say for legitimate reasons, but the fact that it has stuck in my mind for so long must say something about the way, deep down, I have never quite trusted her. I relate to a lot of what you wrote there. Uh, he has been emotionally abused. I realized early on in my childhood that my brother and sister and I, but especially I, existed to provide emotional oxygen to our mother. She was not emotionally there for us in an authentic way, but we had to support her. Our preferences and opinions and feelings only had validity if they aligned perfectly with hers. Boy, I feel like you're describing my mom. We were taught to suppress our feelings and rewarded when, quote, we were brave and didn't cry, unquote. Uh, when we were hurt, for example, we also had to keep up the appearance of the perfect family, even having to sit in the front row of church at Mass, even though none of us wanted to. But if any of us tried to express an emotion, especially a dark emotion that she didn't want to deal with, it went ignored, was invalidated, or quickly dismissed in some way or another. She didn't see us as people separate from her or her needs. 
any positive experiences with abusers. Of course, I'm the oldest and can remember very vaguely when it was just her and me. I can remember us playing together in the old house, and it seemed like her smile was only for me. It was so bright, and she was so beautiful and loved me so much. It was only when I got older that I saw how often that smile was faked, used to manipulate people, or put on as a part of her facade of perfect happiness that we all had to help her maintain. Darkest Thoughts I have no doubt that my mother is, in very large part, responsible for my brother's suicide. I used to doubt myself so much about whether my emotional and physical distrust of my mother was justified. Something always told me, deep down, that my feelings weren't due to anything she had done, but were only a result of my own failure to be a better person and love my poor mother. I used to doubt, too, that the entire family system set up around her. My dad has no personality separate from her, and my sister does her bidding without question, was really as toxic and dysfunctional as it felt and seemed to me. I probably gave all of those the wrong inflection and made that sentence sound incredibly confusing. Uh, Then my little brother who was always the black sheep in her eyes, fucking killed himself. Now, I don't have any doubt, and I wish I had always trusted my feelings and my judgment and my bodily responses to her. Darkest Secrets. I've done a lot of shit I'm not proud of. I've been a womanizer and a cheater and taken advantage of romantic partners. I'm sure that's all pretty textbook for someone raised by someone like my mother. I'm trying to move on and forgive myself for those things, and I'm very lucky to be in a relationship now with someone with the wisdom and capacity to forgive me. That's beautiful. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Lately, I like to think of my wife having sex with another man in front of me, like a cuckold type of situation, but not as mean. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to scream all of the things I shared above right at my mother's face. As you may have guessed, she is not the type of person open to feedback, to say the least. She completely shuts down at the least bit of criticism, either by lashing out or playing the pathetic victim of the person being mean to her by pointing out the ways she's hurt them. It has never gotten me anywhere, so I don't really have a relationship with her at all anymore, because how can I? Question mark. What, if anything, do you wish for? I've been incredibly lucky that I do now have so many things that I once wished for. A career, relationship, kids, and a lifestyle that all make me happy. But if I had to wish for one more thing that I don't have... I'd like an A-frame cabin in the woods with a taxidermy elk head on the wall and a creek in the back. Dude, I relate to so many of the things that you have shared. Uh, I do not identify with wanting the uh, the elk head, but boy, an A-frame cabin with a creek in the back, holy fuck, that's my dream. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared most or all of these things with a few close friends and with my partner. It's always a relief to talk about this shit, and I'm fortunate that they all seem to understand and not judge me for it or doubt my experience and perceptions. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. Thank you for all you do, Paul. Well, you're quite welcome. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I would say trust yourself. 
Trust your instincts and perceptions and how your body responds to situations and people that make you feel unsafe. And don't be afraid to make a change in your life to avoid the things that cause you pain and focus on the things that bring you joy. Dude, my brother from another mother. And then finally, we got some loves by Boat Car Driver. And they write... I love waking up early in the morning when the weather is cool and sitting outside just before the sun comes up. The birds come alive and all the trees and it's just me out there enjoying the weather and the dawn of a new day without interruption. I love getting into bed in the winter when it's cold outside, but I'm warm and comfy in my bed and safe in my house. I love when I get to wake up leisurely on the weekend, especially if I have the house to myself. And I can just browse my phone, relax in bed, then go get coffee and run some errands. I love the feeling I get on Friday afternoons when I don't have to go to bed early or get up and go to work the next day. The whole night is mine and I get to look forward to my weekend plans, even if they're just staying home with my husband. I love kissing my husband goodbye in the morning when I leave first for work. I touch his face and kiss his ear and tell him I love him even though he usually is asleep, despite telling me he loves me too, and to be careful going uh, going it to my car. I think there's a typo there. I cast you to hell. I loved your survey until that typo. And you, you have lost me as a friend. No, I forgive you. I love watching favorite TV shows or movies I love, especially the ones I enjoyed in my younger years, but haven't seen in a while. It's like visiting old friends. Did I'm wondering, did you? No, you weren't the one that filled out that other one where you talked about rewatching movies. I'm going to put a love in here. I love when there is a synchronicity in the surveys. And because uh, I'm usually picking these out in some type of chronological order. And uh, I just love when you get like a couple on the same show where it's like these people could be best friends. And then finally, I love the way my house looks in the evening on the first night after I put up my Christmas decorations. It's clean and sparkly and full of so much joy. Sitting in the quiet or with some low jazz playing and the only light in the room from the decorations to just admire the tree is one of my favorite things of the season. Love it. Love it. I built... uh, some pieces of furniture that, because I love Christmas lights, might be the, <laughs> the only thing that I love about Christmas and the smell of the tree, even though I almost never get a tree. But the the um, the Christmas lights, I would always kind of be bummed when Christmas would be over and you wouldn't get those colored lights. And so when I started making furniture, I thought, well, why don't I make stuff that has like a Japanese lamp and use colored paper. And so in my house, when it's night, there are all these colored lights coming from, uh, from the furniture. And, uh, it's so, it's just so, uh, soothing. And, and I love that I went out of my way 
to identify something that I love and made the effort to design it and create it. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I'm proud of that. Look at me. Look at me. Well, I'm very thankful for the surveys that you guys fill out, those of you that uh, support the, the show, whether it's telling a friend about it or sharing something on social media, uh, being a monthly donor or one-time donor, or just writing something nice in your, in your survey um, or a suggestion. You know, cr- constructive criticism is, uh, is uh, again, constructive Actually, I'd say 99% of the people who have had some type of criticism of the show over the years, uh, 99% of it has been diplomatic and constructive and really loving. And it has really contributed to uh, helping the quality of the show grow. Anyway, I digress. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, never forget, you're not alone. Next couple of weeks, a a roller coaster through a hot turd. Hang on. Before you know it, it'll be January 2nd. And you'll be in the shower washing it all off. Is that it? That's a bad image to leave you with. But you know what? I I got nothing else. (laughs) You're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.